0: Welcome to Job Sharing and Beyond, the future of work podcast that goes beyond the traditional nine to five. I am Karen Tischler, speaker, consultant, and host of the show, where we hear from global experts every other week to discover innovative solutions and tips on how to remain a relevant employer in the future. Hello, everyone. This week, The show is all about skills. My guest is a great example of how a nonlinear career, as well as experiences like being a contestant on Fear Factor, led to transferable business skills and innovation. I can highly recommend David Epstein's book, Range, that talks more about that very topic. And he also includes in his book the example of Francis Hesselbein a leadership visionary who started her professional career in her mid-50s, becoming CEO of Girl Scouts USA by drawing on her many decades of volunteer and unpaid care work earlier. But now, without further ado, let me introduce my guest to you. Eddie Lynn started his career in New York at UBS Investment Bank and Goldman Sachs. After moving to California, he transitioned into marketing at Adobe and then strategy and business development at Life Nation Ticketmaster. Upon graduation from business school, Eddie decided to become a contestant on the reality TV show Fear Factor, where he ate 20 live bees on the season finale. After realizing that traditional education did not actually prepare him for his jobs, he founded Nexus Edge to democratize access to economic opportunity by bringing employer specific training and hiring into the classroom. Nexus Edge is an alumni of the TechStars Kansas City Accelerator and has since partnered with Google, City Ventures, LinkedIn. Canvas, and Shopify on career pathways with a focus on community colleges. Eddie holds a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Texas at Austin and an MBA from the University of Southern California, where he served as student body president. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for um, joining me. So we have so many people listening in from all over the world. Could you share with them where are you calling in from and what type of food or sites that are special to your area?
1: Yeah, I'm calling in from Santa Monica, California, which is basically part of Los Angeles. And the things that I would find special may be a bit touristy, but I actually genuinely enjoy them the most. I would say um, Santa Monica Pier actually is a fun place I do go to on a regular basis or had gone to. Um, Sidecar Donuts which is not far from there. Salt and Straw is a chain of uh, ice cream spots now. I've enjoyed that a lot. Uh, In and Out, yeah, it's uh, maybe cliche around Southern California, but it's still fantastic. Still gets a lot of lines. I have a great time going there too. So fairly touristy, but still enjoyed by at least myself as a local.
0: Thank you so much. Now. I met you as a fellow speaker at a SHRM Better Workplaces Challenge Cup Regional Final, and your life story prior to becoming the co-founder of Nexus Edge is really very unique, so could you share it, please, with our listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people don't actually know what they want to do in college. And I think that's partially the fundamental disconnect in the education system. So when choosing randomly, I chose electrical engineering because someone said that was a reasonable idea. And as I got towards uh, graduation, I just realized it wasn't something I was super passionate or interested in. So I just started checking a bunch of boxes about what I wanted to about jobs and stuff like that that were recruiting on campus. And I ended up at UBS Investment Bank, which was great. I really enjoyed it. And I um, eventually moved from Texas to New York. And uh, work, working in New York was a great and enlightening experience. The culture is so different there. And I think there's so much everybody can learn from being in New York. I think it'll make you a better uh, professional and just a you know, tougher person overall. And that all goes together with both your workplace and your social life. And then after uh, UBS, I moved to Goldman Sachs. And that was, happened to be during the financial crisis. So really fascinating times. And I wanted to make a switch. So, business school, MBA is what a lot of people do to make switches in their career paths. So, I had a lot of family in LA, I've been coming to LA my whole life, actually. So, it was a natural fit um, to go to LA for business school. So, I attended USC, University of Southern California, out here, uh, where I served as student body president. And then, uh, during our internship, we get one uh, during a two year program, Is I ended up, tr- I had never even been to the Bay Area at that point. Uh, and so, even though it's so close by, and then so I decided to intern as a marketing intern at Adobe. And I had never done marketing before to realizing how broad it could really be. There's so many different functions within marketing as well. And then so I had done marketing as an intern at Adobe when I graduated I an opportunity to do Fear Factor. It's a reality TV show where you eat bugs and things like that. Um, I did uh, Fear Factor. was uh, we're on the season finale. I got to title the episode by shouting random things at. Uh, competing teams. And that was a lot of fun. And then after that was done, I got to work in the music industry at Live Nation Ticketmaster. Uh, so I've done a remarkable number of switches because I always felt like I wanted to make sure I was doing something I was really passionate about. I think that's the minimum requirement because I really do feel like life is short. Uh, people don't take enough risks. And at the same time, uh, I've seen a lot of friends, several things that they don't really enjoy Uh, And I get that because it's, you know, there's a lot of safe options out there, you know, not, you know, not taking risks is not for everyone. But one of the big things that meant a lot to me is what I've seen throughout my career that influenced uh, what I really wanted to make a change in the world too which is people not really knowing what they want to do for their career path. And there's a lot of inequity in the world, too. And I think education is fundamentally broken, to be totally serious. You know, you work at all these different jobs and people are always joking around and said, oh, what we learned in school doesn't prepare us for our jobs. Ha ha. Right. But it's really not that funny when you have to repay student loans or let's just say uh, you can't even pay for school in the first place or you graduate with a ton of debt and you can't get a job. But ironically, at the same time, you have a lot of employers saying we can't find trained talent. We have really a hard time finding diverse, qualified talent at scale. And then so that's kind of a funny spot. You have students who really are qualified, but can't really demonstrate that. And they're in a ton of debt. At the same time, you have employers who are looking for well-trained talent, but they're not prepared. So how do you bridge that gap became the big question. I said, I want to be part of that gap. I, I, me joining another industry I haven't learned before is actually something I'm used to. Learning industries I've never been in before. So that's when I decided to join the education industry. And I can get into more specifics about that. Um, but that was kind of the motivation behind doing all that. And it's been quite the journey because I've learned so much uh, along the way. But that itself is a whole dialogue. But that is where I, how I ended up in this industry that I did today uh, after all those different industries that I've been in.
0: And thank you so much. It's such a fascinating life story. So what I'm curious about is if you reflect back What are the transferable skills you feel you have learned from all of these different parts of your life?
1: Everything is transferable. I mean, if everything you learn in every job you've ever done is transferable. And maybe it's easy to realize that looking backwards, because anytime someone says, oh, well, this is not useful. My next job, it may not be right away, but it all makes sense looking backwards. For example, uh, we did a workforce program for community college students and city uh, ventures, um, and that was interesting because actually my previous background, my first two jobs at UBS investment bank and Goldman Sachs, really helped me with many facets of that program. So people would ever wonder, what does that have to do with education? Well, that help me uh, as we develop that workforce program with city? Okay, and at the same time, what happens when I was doing marketing at Adobe, and then um, you know I learned a ton of, I create a lot of different models there from a marketing perspective. And ironically enough, um, it was a community college that asked me to teach marketing first. And my experience had been marketing at Adobe. So getting into the community college world became our primary demographic that we're working on today. And that I got immersed into that world when I was, has to be an instructor at one of my other previous jobs. And then at, um, interestingly enough, you ever wonder what the music industry at Live Nation Ticketmaster has anything to do with what's going on today. And it's actually been the skill set is tremendously helpful too, because it was the first time I had ever done business development. And that's really key to pretty much everything. But particularly when you're out trying to make connections between companies and schools, that requires a lot of practice within business development. And you know, the music industry itself is very unique. And I learned a lot of skills well, within that sector that really helped me in education today. So nothing has ever been wasted. Even a fear factor has never been wasted. A lot of times I, I get asked to teach a lot. And I put it in my deck and probably the part that people respond to, students respond to best, and I guess their teachers as well, is my experience on fear factor and those pictures from those slides. So fear factor has made its way in a lot of education panels and presentations I've been a part of.
0: I, I vividly remember these slides, <laughs> Edger, because yeah, they are definitely unique. So now you've already alluded and given a little bit of, uh, you know, some examples of um, Nexus Edge, but could you just sort of walk our listeners through how did you start it and like, you know, sort of the beginning of Nexus Edge?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of pivots along the way, but to really go through the ideas behind the current iteration is extremely important because at the end of the day, when education is really delivering value to the employers, but let me start. Okay. Let me take a step back. Okay. So at the end of the day, um, I think a lot of what's going on with the issues that you see in society today actually stem from economic inequity. I think solving that is one of the biggest issues that will resolve other issues that you see um, that are not only plaguing the U.S., but globally as well. And where does economic sustainability and equality come from? It, ultimately, education drives a lot of that, too. So in my view, that solving the problems within education will solve economic inequality, which solves a lot of the other issues resulting from that. So it says, how do you fix education? At what point do you fix education? Well, at the end goal to get the closest one to get to economic equality is when students are getting closely, more closely to graduation training for that employment. But when is it too late or when is it too early? So probably the biggest balance, because you can't boil the ocean. So the balance that we decided was uh, towards the end of K-12 and early post-secondary college. And I think that was the sweet spot that we could both focus on because um, you want to focus on a narrow market to scale while providing uh, that, solving that mission that we did discuss about providing economic equality. So when you do that, the end of goal of that is employment. So you got to start with employment and work backwards, which is actually interesting because the current stated education system is they start with education and try to make the education fit the employers. And that actually is extremely difficult to do. Uh, and if not, I would actually argue impossible, because you can't do this at scale because you can't have every teacher on the planet reaching out to every single employer on the planet, and say, what do you want to do? Hope things don't get lost in conversation and try to put within your classroom. It's just not feasible. And it's not, and it doesn't respond well in real time because employment changes much faster than education. So then the question becomes: how do you get employers to influence what is taught in classrooms at scale globally and at the same time help those classrooms? learn and accommodate the rapidly changing interests of employers so and how do you do this at scale because a lot of people try to do this by there's a lot of manual moving pieces so it's very expensive and you only influence maybe a handful of students with a lot of dollars spent so the thing that we said is employers are driving it let's talk to the employers so i just met as many employers as possible um, and and they it turns out they have similar missions too so I met as many employers as possible and they have similar missions and views on education, how that cultivates their workforce and how they want to influence classrooms. Like that's great, we're aligned. So how do we be how do we begin to influence these classrooms at scale? Which is that means you gotta meet a bunch of teachers, classrooms, leadership there too. So it was that live nation experience where I'm working with artists as well as corporations that really brings those two separate parties together. So it was actually leveraging previous experience as well. But then the technology what makes it cost-efficient and your ability to do that at scale. So what is the one place where everyone is going to be? And we realized that that was learning management systems, specifically Canvas, who we work with very heavily to this day, is that, okay, if you work with the software that is used in every single classroom and you work with the employers and then you work with the schools, you can put that employer content and create that pipeline from education to employment, employment, directly within Canvas or their native learning management system in classrooms. So using technology and relationships between education and employers, you can create a direct pathway that is more fair than what you see today from the classroom directly to actual employment. And that goes to why is this pathway important? Couple of reasons. One is that the current way people are hired is through resumes. And you see that there's a lot of bias in resumes. There's so many studies about the biases involved within resumes, as well as um, the inherent biases within resumes, as well as really, resumes are a very strange game. Uh, It's really about the art and strategy behind putting a resume, not necessarily your ability. We've seen a ton of candidates get overlooked because they don't know how to draw examples into their resumes because they're really qualified at it. it. And the thing is, uh, and I get why, but a lot of candidates are unfairly valued on their resume based on prior work history. And it's very hard to start your work history when you don't have work experience. And a lot of times in wealthier neighborhoods, you know, someone's parents or something, your network is there to give you that first job. So inherently, those at a disadvantage are even at a more disadvantage. And that perpetuates the cycle of inequity within our society. So what we had to do is, take a skills-based approach towards hiring, a skills-based approach towards learning. And they really all go together. So the question became, how do you create a skills-based way of learning and hiring and have it be acceptable and accepted as currency among employers? And we had to do that as we helped construct content and deploy it uh, the ways that satisfied both the employers and educators.
0: This sounds just amazing. And I couldn't agree more that, especially, you know, looking at resumes, there is definitely a bias and, you know, where I'm coming from is the bias of somebody who had to take um, time out of the paid workforce because they were an unpaid care worker or caregiver. And while I believe they live, have learned many transferable skills at this point um, from a you know, recruiting perspective, these are often undervalued. And so I'm really, you know, curious, how can we ensure that this time in somebody's work history is really accepted, not, or not just accepted, but really valued, and the transferable skills from it are seen?
1: Yeah, so I think if you take care of those earlier in their career, as early as possible in their career, without any experience within industry, you actually solve the issue that you're talking about, about bringing those back into the workforce. Because bringing those back into the workforce, leveraging their previous experience, I think is a lot easier than with starting from absolutely nothing. So uh, what we had to do there is, okay, for these, um, like when I was asked to teach, I was asked to teach as, at two community colleges in California, I had never taught before. So again, this is me learning another industry I'd never learned before. Like what else is new these days, right? So what I ended up doing was I was like, wow, you know, a lot of these, uh, I don't teach from textbooks because first of all, I don't like textbooks and I don't think they're relevant to the workplace, especially flipping through it. Sorry, publishers out there who may be listening. Uh, but, you know, what I, I realized was, all right, let me just teach how industry is expects things and let's just see what they do. And then what happened was a my students in community college, I felt like performed like uh, many people I know, colleagues in New York, they performed at that level. And I'm sure that they wouldn't be, New York is not going to come recruiting at California community colleges, but I know they're just as talented. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you make them see that? So that was the part where building skills-based exams for those with no work experience or in their careers, they don't really have anything to really Put on their resume at all, and that's not their fault because I was in that position too. Uh, when early in my career, I got nothing to put on my resume, right? So I get that. So once we solve that, which I feel like we've at least shown to some degree, then I think it's much easier to bring those that have been out of the workforce for some time with that experience, because you take that same level of skill assessment with their resume too, and say, hey, look, you know, they can still do the job. It doesn't matter how long they've been out of the workforce. Um, and you know what? The community college demographic is heavily in that too, about 25% I heard about those who are coming back into the workforce, upskilling, reskilling. I'd say that's about consistent with the percentage of students I had my classes that were that demographic. So I think they fall into the same demographic as the community college students we work with, and also solving the toughest issue of how do you have those with zero experience, it makes it easier for those with some work, or a lot of work experience than just those who've been out of the workforce for some time
0: sounds like a very good approach yes sometimes how do you convince i feel like a hr recruiter that um taking care of multiple children and say having time management skills that you hadn't before to organize schedules things like that it's hard to measure it per se
1: you know, I understand that when you have a family, you have other commitments that are some of the most important life commitments that you do have. But at the same time, it's always been a big premise of what we do is if you can do the job, you should get the job. So it doesn't matter how much time you spend. If you happen to work faster, and more efficiently or something, you get things done. You deserve that job and you can show people that. And most people have families anyway. So if you can't discriminate based on, say, hey, they have a family, so they're not as committed because most people have families. So in they know how to be efficient with their time anyway, and they can make it work. And employers shouldn't think about, oh, what are their other commitments? The thought should be around, can they get everything done regardless of whatever their commitments are? Because even if you don't have a family, you may have a lot of other commitments as well. So the metric should be more on your ability to do the job and execute within timeframes necessary to successfully do your job. So the family thing, I think, is less of a concern these days, especially um, as most employers themselves have families.
0: What I'm trying to sort of see is how can the people themselves understand when they're coming back to the paid workforce or trying to get back that the skills they have accumulated during that time are indeed transferable. Because I think often one of the biggest hindrance or barriers to re-entry is a lack of business self-confidence because often they just, quote, unquote, think I'm doing my job and might not necessarily see all of these transferable skills. But then it perpetuates because maybe they don't see They don't give examples. And it goes back what you were saying earlier to the resume. They might not sort of demonstrate it on a resume. And maybe that makes it therefore harder for a recruiter to see and understand if they have not had the same lived experience, what type of transferable business skills, such as time management, leadership skills, empathy, can be accumulated during that time.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting is that those types of self confidence issues are basically as prevalent in the I've just started my career demographic as those who are coming back into the workforce. And the good thing about self-confidence issues is it's 100% within your control. So it's purely about changing your own state of mind. You don't have to rely on any external factors. It's all on you. And I would say to those going back into the workforce, the same thing I say to people starting their careers is fear is not a factor. And that is the slogan of fear factor. So people always ask me, what does Fear Factor have to do with the actual workforce, employment or business? Like, what does it have to do with anything? Well, it's actually probably one of the most important things, because if anyone's watched the show, you understand that people are eating cockroaches, bees, scorpions. And I ate 20 live bees, and my teammate was covered in 200,000 live bees. And when you hear that, you think some people say, oh, I couldn't have done that. I can't do that, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is anybody can do that. Anybody can eat 20 live bees, and it is not that hard. It's just the thing about it is it's the psychology ahead of time where you think, oh, I can't eat these 20 live bees. But then when you're done eating them, you're like, wow, that was not a big deal. I could eat 20 more. It wasn't really that hard. It's not that hard. So it's that perception problem. You think eating the bees is hard, but when you're done eating them, you're like, wow, it's no big deal. And it's the same way with a lot of these issues, especially this one that we're talking about right now. It's purely a psychological thing. You think that you don't have the right skills. It really is just your perception that you can't eat bees it's it doesn't it's just purely in your own head and it doesn't even make sense so you got to get over that and just say hey fear is not a factor i can eat the bees and you can say hey i can market everything that i've done as transferable skills and it makes a lot of sense because what happens is one of those characteristics that make you most successful in the workplace are really areas like empathy your uh, you know your leadership abilities like you were saying empathy leadership abilities your hunger for learning? Do you have a natural intellectual curiosity? Because industry changes so fast anyway, even if you had been in industry and refused to have that natural intellectual curiosity to keep up, you will be behind anyway. So the thing is, a person who is clever and really wants to learn can work hard and get up to speed on any technical things that have changed. But the most important attributes that they can't really hire for are going to be the ones that the natural empathy and leadership that they have had that they can bring back right away. So the most important aspects that they need in a job, they already have built and they can already demonstrate from the previous history. And anything that's happened while they've been out of the workforce, they can learn. I actually contend they can learn in a few days, actually. (laughs) Because these skills, like specific to that job, if you've been in the industry, is really easy to pick up. And look, I've switched careers like a million times. Like it is not that hard to pick up a lot of these core skill sets uh, if you really want to learn them for any of these industries. I can list the specific ones for every industry. You can pick it up pretty quickly.
0: One thought is how do we make recruiters and HR personnel, you know, maybe switch preconceived notions about people who are coming back to paid work do you have any thoughts
1: yeah absolutely that's actually one of the core foundations of how we're changing recruiting is that we are making it skills-based exams as a way to at least start out that recruiting process because there's a lot of biases and can this person even do the foundational skills so we get past that and then there are other ways that we help evaluate those soft skills and soft skills as air quotes Is that we're talking about in terms of empathy, leadership, teamwork abilities? Those kinds of things you can a little bit harder to quantify. So we have that as the second stage of evaluation. We have our own ways of doing it. Now, the only way we believe that to be able to remove those inherent biases among HR is to really implement this process that we are implementing at a great amount of scale. Because you know, having just this structure of the resume process right now has so many biases within that process. I think it's just one of those things you just got to toss and just redo. And I think it's about time to redo it too. And I think everybody knows it too. With these diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, I think being so prominent as they are now, I think the best way to fix that perception among HRs is to just trash it. And then I think rebuild it because this is one of those things where it's a sunk cost, like just get rid of it. And that is our philosophy to the degree where, you know, when you build things the way we want to build things, you want to change the world. So that goal is we want to replace all of hiring towards this skills-based approach that we've implemented uh, in uh, some employers that we've done already. So uh, that I think is the best approach in our opinion and it'll take a lot, but I think that's the only way to really get it
0: done. These are great points, Eddie. Now you're talking about scaling the screening of students or you know professionals. Do you have examples from your own professional experience
1: there's an issue within my life example that i think that goes to show exactly what the issue is within screening students at scale with an hr when i was at live nation ticketmaster i was hiring for a role and There in my inbox was mapped to the external facing live nation.com website, the largest concert producer in the world. Think about every time you go to a concert, you go to take a message. Well, there's a job on there. And it was something that I was recruiting for. So people from all over the world were submitting to that. It got to a point where there was over 3000 resumes mapped to my inbox. And I was, so I had a choice here. It's like, do my regular job, go through 3000 resumes, 90% of which were obviously massively not qualified or get a beer right? And I say that for a reason is because that is reality. If you have someone hiring for a role, they have to choose between doing well on their core job, getting a beer, or looking at resumes where 90% of the people, uh, it's not their fault. I encourage them to apply. It's just not the right fit for that role. So that's why the process needs to be fixed. And when it comes to HR, I think when you think about that role as well, that's why I think our methodology really helps uh, from a hiring manager standpoint as well otherwise they're going to have to choose between beer children job or the 3000 resumes and i'll tell you right now the 3000 resumes are not that appealing and if you've come across that scenario you know that's going to be true too so that methodology and that example to me was very illuminating on why the process needs to change because uh when a resume would come across my desk that was internally referred i would interview that person guaranteed uh, because I just want to show courtesy to my colleagues, too. It does show a level of credibility because they do know someone who does respect them that I respect because they're my peers. But at the same time, there is, in, there is inherent like, like fundamental flaws within that process. Is the people who tend to know people you work with already have greater privilege. So what about those that are being overlooked? Then they're not getting interviews. They might be one of the 3,000 that are getting discarded in that process, which is why the process needs to change. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with referrals. I'm saying that that benefits those with already have means. And that's the process that I really wanted to fix.
0: Thank you. Yes. And I couldn't agree more. In order to get a more inclusive and diverse workforce, yes. Yeah. Now we need to have additional methods to ensure that people can get to the point that they get interviews and they might not know somebody in a particular organization and yeah, and might have a different background. Yes, thank you. There is a state of the world's father's report that I'm a big fan of, and that recently came out with the latest edition. And they pointed out that in the world, it's gonna take at least 92 years until we have equality in unpaid care work. And so, you know, when you look around the world, there is a lot of emphasis on um, women or or female students to learn STEM professions. But by contrast, that report has yet to find any national initiative worldwide that, that puts the same emphasis on caring and education professions for, um, you know, male students. So as we were talking about diversity and inclusion, in my mind, one of the key aspects is how do we enable for everybody to have the same chances for any type of um, profession. So I'm curious if you know your um, approach can help with that as well.
1: Yeah, I think the way our approach is done is it's less focused on who you are, what you should be, as in these are the opportunities for you. And as people discover those opportunities for them in a very objective setting, which is the environment that we've created, it says it's not about um, this is your age, race or gender, this is who you should be. It's about, you know, I pass this, I like this content, and then this opportunity is available to you. So by providing the unbiased approach towards hiring, it actually provides, an unbiased approach towards career discovery as well to the point where the next generation is not even going to know that there was a perception that certain genders, ages, races, like gravitate towards something because they're just going to see opportunities and they're not even going to think about that. So that's why I think just tearing apart the whole system is the only way to do it. It's one of those things where if you try to fix it, uh, you're going to spend a lot of time and money and really not get it done. So I think as we build this, the next generation is going to have a very different th- thought process around what opportunities are available to them anywhere. where you don't have to do uh, all those initiatives. you had a cultural initiatives that every company is doing on how to change perceptions around STEM careers. So I think it's the same way for all careers because you can't run these really heavy lift programs for every single career path and try to make things uh, the perception of every single career to be objective. So I think this approach that we're taking really fixes that as well, which is why I'm so excited about the approach that we've been taking and the results that we've seen so far is that it addresses a lot of these issues about career equality, perception, upskilling, all within one solution, which is if you can do the job, you should get the job.
0: Is there anything we have not addressed that you would like our listeners to know, Eddie?
1: I mean, mostly our focus has been on education to workforce. So I mean, in HR out there, if you could really just have this mentality to say, hey, let's work with us on changing the way we go from education to employment. And this is not just you know pure self-interest on our company alone. It's about that I think it's the right thing from a mission perspective. And if there's anyone out there who wants to chat about this, I mean, that's a big uh, passion of ours. So you see that more and more This says, you can get a greater, more diverse workforce by taking this approach. And I'd like to take that journey with anyone in HR listening, uh, because we've seen some really cool results so far. And I'm happy uh, to go into that as well, uh, because there's a lot of people out there that you're missing. And it's because the methodologies in reaching them right now that have been done historically for decades is not scalable to reach everybody out there, especially in underserved communities. So Um, That's a lot of detail right there. But I would love to speak with individual HR managers uh, to talk about how we can do that in a way that works for their firm.
0: And now how can they reach you?
1: Yes. So I'm obsessively on my email. Uh, So emailing me at eddie at nexusedge.com is the best way to reach me. Um, It's E-D-D-I-E at N-E-X-U-S-E-D-G-E dot com. So Eddie with an IE. Uh, and Eddie at Nexusedge.com. And I want to be very explicit about how you spell Eddie because I, when I was in the Northeast, they spelled it differently. Uh, yet on the West Coast, they seem to spell it the way I spell it. So
0: E D D I E. Thank you. And I will be sure to put it also in the show notes so people from all around the world can find you.
1: Yes. People all around the world will know the best way to spell Eddie and that is important. So yes, please put that in notes as well. And I like the way I spell my name.
0: Well, thank you so much, Eddie, for coming onto the show and sharing your innovative ideas and thoughts and, you know, changing of the future methodology. So thank you very much.
1: You know, thank you so much for having me and allowing us to share how we feel about uh, the topics that we put so much dedication and passion towards uh, i am always loved speaking to this subject and thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it
0: thank you thank you so much for listening to the show we hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas to keep listening to future episodes please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating we would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye!